Uh, it's my partner, James. I'll let James introduce himself here in just a minute. I've been on the police department for 29 years. Uh, with This is going on my fourth year in the mental health unit. Before that, I was an instructor at the academy. Um, spent most of my time working patrol, though. James? Yes, uh, my name is Officer James Waynes. I've been with the department 10 years. Uh, I was on patrol three of those, and then I was on a street crime unit prior to coming to the mental health detail, which I've been a part of for six years now. So, right, so we're going to start off... Like talking about what are we, who are we, more than anything else. Quickly, we're going to go over our, our unit makeup. We're going to talk about some of the things that we do, some of the schools that we teach, how we deal with mental illness. We'll talk about our collaborative efforts, and that means who do we work with, and finally, what is the impact that we're having in, in how we present and deal with people with mental illness. Starting off, first of all, our unit is a very small unit. We're comprised of 10 officers. We're supervised by a sergeant. We currently have three vacancies in our unit that we're getting ready to correct. Um, we wear plain clothes when we go to work. We don't wear a uniform. When people are in crisis, uh, the uniform, the first thing that happens when they show up is what? Their crisis level increases because police are here. They're going to arrest me. Uh, and there was a time when that was the case. You know, I came on the department in 1988. When I came on the department, when we dealt with people with mental illness, our option was teach them how to fold tinfoil hats or take them to jail. And, and I'd like to say that that's a joke, but it's not. That's the reality of it. Um, I actually learned how to fold tinfoil hats for people and say, hey, put this on your head. That'll keep the voices away. We know, we, we know that that's not the case. We've come a long way since then. Um, but the other option was putting them in jail. Uh, as a result, the penal system became the largest provider of mental health services in the country because that was the rationale throughout the entire country. Uh, things have changed considerably since then. Um, we still have a long way to go. Even though we teach crisis intervention, we talk about it throughout the country, we've got 46 states on board, but there are still four states in the, in the country that don't require any kind of mental health training for officers. Um, fortunately, none of them are around here, and we aren't one of them. Uh, so, but our unit... We have 10 officers. We actually have uh, three teams that work days. We work in, in two-man teams. We dress strictly in civilian clothes. We drive unmarked cars. When we go to work, we keep all of our, nothing says SAPD, nothing says police. Our weapons are under our shirts. Uh, we have a badge that goes around our neck. We can tuck it away if we have to. But that's really it. When we talk to people, we want them to see us as people. We introduce ourselves as John. I'm John. This is James. We don't say I'm Officer Sabo. We don't. You know, Officer Williams, we're not, we don't identify ourselves with the San Antonio Police Department. We just say, hey, look, I'm John. I'm here to help. And that's what we're out there for. Uh, we work Monday through Friday right now. Uh, first shift comes on at 7 a.m., works till 5. Second shift comes on at 5 a.m. and works till 3. We have a training, or a training officer, which is actually me. I'm the training coordinator for the department, and I'll talk about schools in just a minute. We have another officer that does, he monitors firearms that we when we seize firearms from people with mental illness, uh, and there's a specific way that that has to be handled, and he does a bunch of the other, other office work. We have a detective assigned to our unit, which is new. Uh, he, he is in charge of handling all of our threat assessments for people with mental illness that can be deemed as a threat to society. Case in point, during Fiesta, we had an individual posting on Facebook about don't go downtown. If you go downtown, you're not responsible for what happens, et cetera, et cetera. Our detective used resources, tracked him down. We went out and we did an interview with this person, found that it was probably best that he not be left alone. We did what's called an emergency detention on him. 
and put him in a mental health facility for an evaluation. And then we have two clinicians assigned to us from the Center for Healthcare Services. The Center for Healthcare Services is our kind of our umbrella for mental health for all of Bear County. These clinicians are there to help us do follow-ups. This is a new program for us. Uh, for many years, and our department, our, our unit's only been around about eight years. Um, we would go out, we would make our contacts, and we would be done with the people. We would never see our consumers again. Now we're following up with them. We use the clinicians, we go out with them, we say, hey, um, we know we got you into services. Are you following those services? What can we do to further help you? If we can intervene before patrol has to intervene, they're not dealing with the patrol officers. Uh, and while our patrol officers are trained, we do it better. Toot our own horn here for a minute. Um, so the fact that we can follow up has really helped us a lot, and it's helped our consumers a lot. So we're going to talk about a little bit of our function and responsibilities with the unit. So um, part of the opportunity that we have as officers with the crisis intervention team is we're instructors for our 40-hour CIT schools. In fact, we have a children's one next week that we're going to teach specifically geared towards children and resources for children with mental illness uh, and, the, and their parents. Uh, resources they could turn to for that. So I think about three, four months out of the year, we're actually in the classroom teaching. And what we teach is how to recognize some of the things that officers may see in the field. Uh, we have a bunch of different professionals that come out, organizations, NAMI comes out. Uh, we have different doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists to come and speak towards uh, more of the scientific portion of uh, mental illness, what it is, uh, how to recognize certain types. And so when the officers get to a call, now they have this training where they could uh, be able to associate what this is. This is a, a behavioral issue. This is maybe a mental health-related uh, issue. And then we can get them into proper services, one of those services being the mental health court, um, which I think we'll probably speak a little bit on uh, later. But I'm going to just give you a little brief on that if anyone's not familiar with it. So we can divert individuals who are in crisis and who have a mental health uh, diagnosis into County Court 12. What this means is if they have committed a misdemeanor offense, uh, maybe it's a, a, a minor theft or it could be a trespassing, uh, what we're doing now is we're able to circumvent them from the criminal side and get them into services through the civil side, through the courts, uh, get them on treatment, get them to see a doctor. Again, using a better, uh, better utilization of our resources. It's, uh, again, more expensive to incarcerate someone than to actually get them treatment. And again, does somebody with a mental illness need to be in jail if, it, if they're, again, committing the same type of offense over and over again and they're not getting treated? No. And that's the issue is probably they're not being treated properly. So now we're able to do what's called jail diversion, get them into services, and hopefully prevent those things from happening in the future. So again, we're uh, teaching the officers to recognize uh, what they're dealing with when they get in a situation. We also kind of touch on a little bit about TBIs, maybe um, some dementia, Alzheimer's, and also some uh, traumatic brain injury um, or something else that we uh, go over. But, yeah, just kind of recognizing some of those things, maybe drug-induced um, issues as well, okay? Um, again, we collaborate uh, with the fire department, and these are just some of the stats that we, uh, people we've trained. So, so far we've trained about 2,700 uh, SAPD officers. So it's mandated in our department. Every officer is CIT trained. The chief's mandated that. And so every officer has to go through a 40-hour CIT school uh, to learn how to deal with folks in, in the community that are dealing with the crisis. We also have taught about 1,500 BCSO, Bear County Sheriff Offices, and other agencies. We've had the opportunity to have uh, federal agencies, some of the military as well. Security forces have come out, and they've come to our course to deal with some of the folks on the base who may be going through a crisis as well. 
And then we also have the SAPD, uh, SAFD uh, fire department, paramedics and firefighters. They go through both of our classes. Um, they go through the 40 hours adult school and they go to the children's school as well. And it's really great having those guys because a lot of those guys, we consider them, uh, all of them, reliable reporting persons. Basically somebody who's not giving us a reason to, uh, that they've lied to us before. And so a lot of times, these guys may be on scene first. And if they're talking to someone who's in crisis, everybody loves firemen, right? So uh, people typically will tell a fireman something before they may tell the, the officer. Uh, so when we get on scene, the paramedic may tell us, hey, look, officer, uh, you know, they, they told me that they did, uh, took this, that they're thinking about maybe harming themselves, maybe harming someone else. And again, our goal is to get there and figure out what the situation is and how to appropriately address it. If we have the right information, we can do that. And so our partners with SAFD have, has helped us tremendously. But not only that, just the approach now that police officers are taking in San Antonio um, and other places to deal with people in crisis, we're able to communicate effectively, take our time on these calls, um, and actually figure out what the needs of the person are. And then we've also trained over 72 different agencies, local, state, and federal. We've had some um, out-of-state folks that have come, I think from Iowa, had a few other places, but they've actually come to do this training. And our training is completely free. We do the 40 hours all week. Uh, we don't charge anybody to come because we want people to come to the training. We want them to, uh, to get what we're, what we're teaching. And, so, and it's also a great collaborative effort. So we can do that without charging. People could come down. They can get the information, maybe even spread it back to their respective agencies. And we can get those agencies going, going on board with uh, crisis intervention training as well. So the focus of CIT training is de-escalation. It's all about communication. Um, for, for many years, we, in law enforcement, used the attitude of two-minute cuff them and stuff them. If I couldn't handle the call in two minutes, I was putting you in handcuffs, putting you in the car, and taking you away. Um, now, with crisis intervention, we're telling officers, step back, breathe, talk to people. People in crisis don't need you crowding them. They don't need this authoritarian figure. They want somebody to talk to them. And listen, more important. That's the one thing we teach about, about crisis intervention and active listening is quit talking and learn to listen. Uh, so much of what we do is asking direct questions over and over again. No. Let somebody in crisis vent. Let them tell you what's going on. Find out what the root, root of the problem is and then learn what kind of services we can give you. So throughout the 40-hour week, we spend a lot of time talking about crisis intervention and talking about active listening skills. We role play where we actually bring in uh, clinicians from the Center for Healthcare Services. We bring in people from NAMI. We bring in uh, actors, role players that will play the part of somebody suffering a crisis. And the people that attend the class are doing a one-on-one -on -one with them and utilizing the skills that they've learned each day. So that's been a great thing for us. Uh, as I said, and James said, Texas requires, by, by law, 16 hours of this kind of training for officers. Um, in 2010, Chief McManus said, no, that's not enough. Um, we, we were the first department in the country to mandate 100% of our officers go through this 40-hour training. We're right, up, right about 92% of training officers. Um, in addition to that, every three years, we have to go through an additional eight hours of updates. So we're constantly now focusing more on dealing with people in mental crisis and how to better deal with them through communication. What services can we provide? Which hospitals can they go to? Which um, um, inpatient mental health facilities can we get them into to better service them because jail is not the answer. 
So we do four of these 40-hour classes a year. In addition to that, we do two children's classes. These are 40-hour classes we do in conjunction with the San Antonio Independent School District with the focus on school resource officers. Um, we all know that mental health issues with children are often ignored. The stigma is still attached there that, oh, no, my, my child can't have a mental illness. No, if we ignore it, it'll go away. That doesn't happen. The sooner, the sooner that the mental illness can be identified, the sooner treatment can be initiated, the better off that person is. But it's sometimes years with children um, before that can get identified. We were talking to somebody today that said that their child, the diagnosis wasn't found until they actually got arrested and booked into jail. Um, so now we're teaching school resource officers to better deal with it. Somebody told me today about a video that just came out where the, the school resource officer tased a student. Um, that's not what we want to see on YouTube, folks. <laughs> um, but here's the reality. The officer that goes out there and spends 45 minutes talking to that child and de-escalating doesn't show up on YouTube. Um, but so we do two of these classes a year uh, in the summertime. In fact, we're, that's where we'll be all of next week. Um, and we have agencies from all over the state of Texas coming in. The fire department and EMS send their, their people through because oftentimes they're the first ones there. Again, all the federal agencies are continuing to come in. So it's a really great class uh, focused specifically on children. We teach our 911 call takers about active listening skills and communicating with people in crisis because they are our true first responders. When somebody needs help and they pick up that phone and they call 911, the last thing they want is somebody that's not empathetic. Uh, the other end, it's like that just doesn't care because it's like that sets the stage for when we arrive. Well, the dispatcher didn't care. Why should the officers care? So we teach them how to listen. And that is the hardest part because the reality of it is, as you're all are sitting there listening to me, I'm walking around, I'm moving, I move my hands, I, and I talk. 80% of my communication is coming from voice. It's coming from my body movements, my face. With only 20% of actually what I'm saying is involved in communication. Well, with our 911 dispatchers, it's 100%. All they have is what is being said on the other end of the line. So it's a very difficult thing for them to deal with somebody in crisis and not be able to recognize what's going on through facial, you know, facial uh, expressions and everything. We tell people with our active listening skills, one of the ones we use is emotional labeling, is you look upset or you sound, you sound aggravated. Um, I can look and I can see if somebody's upset or somebody's mad or somebody seems distraught or depressed. They have to go strictly by what they're hearing. So they get 16 hours of that training along with, uh, with role playing in the afternoon. We teach all the cadets in the academy the 40-hour CIT program. Um, we're, we'll be in there in, in two weeks. Um, we're doing like five cadet classes a year. Uh, and we do about five or six dispatch classes a year too. Um, the cadets are the same way. And now we're taking cadets with no field experience and we're bringing all this into them and saying, hey, look, this is, this is what you've got to look forward to. Um, catch them early. <laughs> but, but this is the reality of it, is the CIT school we used to teach, we would catch them after, after two years in the street. Well, they didn't have any experience about mental illness. So now, if we, we get them in the academy and say, look, talk to people first, we implant that seed early. Um, you know, I got, on, I got into the CIT thing uh, when we started doing that, I, I'd been on like 20, 24 years. 
I was set in my ways. Okay? Truthfully, um, when we started CIT here, it was, you had to go to CIT school to get a taser. I wanted the taser. I didn't care about CIT. Um, but you, you learn the reality is, you know, we go to work with our Batman belts on. I got a gun. I got a taser. I got a, a baton. I've got pepper spray. I've got handcuffs. I've got all these cool things on my belt. And some days I would go the whole day without using any of it. That was a good day. But the reality of it was, Every call I made, we were utilizing active listening skills. We were talking to people on every single call. And I started realizing that's the most important tool in our toolbox, is communication. Um, so the, more, the sooner we can impress upon these cadets to communicate, talk to people, the less likely they are to go out there and jump into that use of force. And that's what we want to stay away from, especially for people that are already in crisis. The last thing we want is going hands-on with somebody that's already in crisis. That was one of the great things about our unit. In, uh, in the eight years that our unit has been around, the number of calls that we make, and we make the calls for people that are in serious crisis, and we hadn't had any use of force. Uh, a couple years ago, that changed, but it was bound to happen. Um, so we've done pretty good with that. Um, we do... In-service updates every three years where we go back to the academy with, every, with the entire department as they come through once a week uh, and, and give everybody the updates on what's changed in the mental health community. And then we also make all the presentations and the, the roundtables with all the mental health communities, with all the hospitals and the inpatient mental health facilities. We represent there to say, what can we do to help? Um, so a big portion of what we do is training, but that's not the only thing we do. And I'm going to let James talk to you about, about what else we do. Because we've got a multifaceted operation within our unit. Um, so while training is big, and I talk about it because I'm the training coordinator, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of our training program. We spend about three and a half or four months out of the year in the classrooms teaching. Um, but that isn't all we do. So just like John said, when we show up to someone's house or we show up to a call, we're in plain clothes. Again, the, the whole idea is for de-escalation. And so when we, how do we respond to calls of people in crisis? Each one of us on the unit have a city cell phone. So if someone wants to call us directly, they can do that. Um, we have some cards in the back with our phone numbers on it. If someone calls me and says, hey, James, um, Arthur Williams, whichever, um, you know, my son is, is having an episode. This is what's going on. Um, I really need to get them to the hospital. He, this is the behavior that's going on. We can actually show up to the house and we can actually sit down and talk to the individual about what's going on with their son, what kind of treatment they've gotten in the past or currently, if they're getting any. And the beautiful part about that is we can spend as much time as we want on a call. We're not subject to call. So on patrol, you know, you have to handle the barking dog, the disturbance, the burglary call. With us, uh, we spent uh, eight hours on one call one time. And if that's what it takes to get the proper response, uh, that's what we're going to take, okay? Um, and it's typically not usual, but we do. Uh, our typical calls last between two, three hours. Uh, we're dealing with someone in severe crisis, and that's really a lot of talking, a lot of uh, coordinating resources, and doing some follow-up. And so I always tell people, I said, this, this job is actually more, I feel, physically demanding at the end of the night than when I was on street crimes, um, just because of the level of um, the type of crisis you're dealing with and just the communication, the talking, um, trying to listen for those indirect statements, those direct statements, trying to figure out what someone says when they say, I don't want to wake up tomorrow. I'll be able to articulate that a little better. So, again, um, 
we get community referrals. So sometimes, uh, I know during the school year, sometimes we get calls from counselors, we get calls from some of the teachers about a student who may be cutting, may be exhibiting some, some behaviors that are concerning. Uh, we'll also get calls from uh, parents, friends, neighbors, associates of people who they feel may be in crisis and want us to come out there and talk to them. And so we'll gladly, uh, we're available, definitely come out there and we'll sit down and talk to the person um, based on the referral and figure out what needs to happen. And then again, uh, we, we also assist the officers in the field. So to keep the officers in service, uh, if we know we're looking at a call that may be someone's uh, suffering some mental decompensation, they can't be left alone, and it's going to be one of those calls that may take a while to handle, we can put the officer back in service and we can actually take the call over ourselves and, and do the appropriate assessment, especially now that we have our clinicians on board, which is really good because we're getting these folks into uh, proper services, follow-up services for uh, outpatient, and we're also getting them case management. So now we have somebody that can follow up with them once a week uh, at minimum and try to figure out, again, what their needs are on a weekly basis, if anything needs to be assessed differently, change medications, um, that, that kind of thing. One of the cool things one of our clinicians did was they helped a lady who, as you know, uh, medications in this field uh, can be quite expensive. Okay? And we deal with a lot of folks who self-medicate. Uh, one of the things that clinicians have been able to do is assist with uh, the cost of that. So getting them into case management, getting them into uh, services so they can afford their medication has been huge. And now some of these folks are taking the medications because they have access to it. Okay? And, and again, it's a small percentage, but it's, it's better than what we had before. Uh, again, half of all Americans at some point will experience some type of mental illness, uh, like the doctor said earlier. Um, and again, in Texas, unfortunately, uh, we, we are not, um, I think we're third in the nation, or third from last in the nation from funding for mental health services. 49. So we, is it fourth now? 49. Fourth. So we're definitely uh, doing more with less, but we're doing, uh, but the training, I think, has been uh, really responsible for that and the collaboration with other agencies getting that, that job done. And so, again, just a, a fun stat here. Again, on average, the U.S. spends about $119.62 per person. Um, Texas spends about $40. So, again, uh, that obviously is, in a, is a huge number, and that's a concern. Uh, we're hopefully, down the road, we'll get that number up. I think, was it Maine now? That Maine, spends Maine on is number one. $320, I believe, uh, per capita for an individual with, with mental illness. So, again, uh, we, we hope to see those numbers change in the future. So when we go out in the field and our officers are out there, what do we teach them? Because, you know, the nice thing is when people call, and we get a lot as they ask for CIT officers, with 92% of our patrol officers trained, the chances of you not getting a CIT officer are greater than the fact that you, you do get one. Um, so we teach our officers about de-escalation. We want them to go out there and we want them to talk. Uh, we utilize the active listening skills. There are seven ac active listening skills. Um, that involve things like uh, paraphrasing, which is listening to what the person's telling you and repeating back to in their own words. We use effective pauses. That's the great one. <laughs> effective pause. Um, <laughs> minimal encouragers, which we, we all do on the phone. We know we're talking, uh-huh, okay, yeah. Those are minimal. They actually have a name for those. They're called minimal encouragers and active listening. Um, <laughs> but this is all the stuff that we use. We use one active listening skill, though, that is actually... A question. Everything else is to invoke listening. And that's the open-ended questions, the who, what, where, whens, whys, and hows that we all have to ask at some point. That is the only one, though, when we're the one asking the question. Um, so we teach our officers to use these active listening skills to allow that person in crisis to vent. 
to keep them talking. We teach them, slow down. One question at a time. Keep it slow, keep it low. Don't confuse. People that are in crisis are already got enough going on without the multiple. When did this happen? Why did this happen? And how, where were you at? Huh? What? Where? What? Slow down. Give them a chance. You take a chance. Breathe. Um, we want to talk about escalators and de-escalators. When somebody's in crisis, you'll have to excuse me, ma'am, but is this comfortable? No. <laughs> people like their space. And when people are in crisis, they like even more space. You know, we, we hear so often, oh, well, people with a mental illness are, are, are violent. No. No, that's, that's not true. Um, the truth is that people with a mental illness are more likely to be a victim of a crime than to cause a crime. Um, now, that being said, if you take somebody that's in crisis and you crowd them, they can go off. But so can I. I like my personal space, too. Um, so we teach officers, keep your distance. We, we've done this for so many years because we're police officers. We, we go to calls with weapons, so we talk to people like this. This, this, this is a defensive stance. I get it. We have a name for it. Um, but it means, hey, look, it's threatening. Can I stand and talk to people? I can create a little distance. I can talk to people just like this. My hands are fine. I'm still doing the same thing. I still am protecting my weapon. I'm still talking. But this is a little more calmer. I don't need to be up here like this talking. It's like, oh, what are you doing? Put your hands up. Relax. <laughs> so we try to, keep, we try to teach, teach the officers that people with mental illness are not the threat that the TV and the news invokes them. I'm sorry, but every mass shooting we have, somewhere in there, they're going to say, oh, there was a mental illness. They don't specify anything, but somebody wants to stick that in there. Um, some people are just evil. They don't need a mental illness. They're just evil. They do the things they do because they're evil. So who do we deal with in our unit? Um, the great thing about our unit is we only make calls for people in crisis. We don't do family violence. We don't do shoplifters. We don't do family disturbances or traffic accidents. Um, we don't pull people over anymore. <laughs> we used to. We, had, we, we would drive unmarked cars. People would blow past us like, oh, this is going to be fun. Um, <clears throat> we turn the lights on. We get them to pull over, and then we drive past them. just drive past them. <laughs> they love that. Yeah, often actually. <laughs> we deal with people that suffer from bipolar. We deal with people that are schizophrenic. We deal with people that suffer from depression, PTSD, suicidal. Those are the people we deal with. We deal with people that are in, in crisis to the point where they can't care for themselves on a daily basis. Um, what's called mental decompensation, where they're not eating. Uh, they're not sleeping. They're, they're not taking their medications. Um, those are the calls, and then actually those are the calls that we prefer to deal with because part of the criteria we have, and we'll talk about emergency detention in just a minute, is we look at people that are suicidal or homicidal that suffer from a mental illness. Um, those are the easy calls for the officers to identify. The people that are in the decomp, that's the gray area where guys, guys are like, I don't know if I want to do this or not. Yeah, we do. We'll take care of it. Um, so, so we'll talk about what we do with them here in just a second. Um, the emergency detention. So an emergency detention is a civil act. Um, and I don't want to say it's an arrest, but it's a kind of an equivalent. But rather than taking that person to jail, it allows us to get that person into services, to be examined by a competent psychiatrist to determine if they have a mental health condition going on, and they do present. 
Now, we have very specific criteria for that. The person must have a mental illness. Uh, they must be a danger to themselves or others. So homicidal or suicidal is what we typically, that, that's the very generic way of looking at it. Or in a state of mental decomp where they can't care for themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. And it must be an immediate need. Obviously, if somebody is suicidal, we're not going to leave and come back later. Um, so if we, when we encounter these people, we say, hey, look, we really want to get you into services. And this is where the active listening skills comes in. This is where we may take an hour or two to talk to somebody that says, I don't want to go. I don't need to go. And in the end, they're going, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Or they're walking out to your car telling you, I'm not going with you. I don't want to go with you. And we're walking along with them going, okay, okay. <laughs> open the car door, they get in and they're like, I don't want to go with you, I'm not going with you, uh-huh, we're good. <laughs> because they don't want to admit to themselves that they need it. They know they do, but they don't want to look like they're, they're giving in to us. And I'm, I'm okay with that, they can tell me no all they want. As long as they're walking out and getting in my car, that's fine with me. Um, so we do this emergency detention process. San Antonio does about 1,100 emergency detentions a month. Um, last year, we did 13,767 emergency detentions. Uh, there are about 292 mental health beds in Bear County. And we're doing 1,100 emergency detentions a month. When people say, why can't we get them into long-term service? There isn't any. There's no money. There's no long there are no long-term services. For us, when we look at long-term, if we can get somebody into services... For a week, we're doing good. Most of the time, it may be four to six hours um, because the turnaround is so high. The, the, the doctors are, are just overbooked. Um, there is what's known as a mental health warrant here. The mental health warrant is basically the same thing as an emergency detention, but it affects people that aren't in immediate need. Um, these are for things for, for like people that... Are in mental crisis. Um, I typically like the, the the neighbor next door that, when the full moon is out, is standing in the backyard naked, howling at the moon. <clears throat> um, are they a danger to themselves or others? Probably not. Um, but do they do they need to probably talk to somebody? Yes. Anyone can do a mental health warrant. Um, so that's not something we do. Uh, those are all done through the Bear County Courthouse. You go down, you fill out an affidavit stating why you believe this person needs it. It goes from there over to Judge Kelly Cross. She reviews it. If she finds there's sufficient probable cause, she actually fills out a warrant. The Bear County Sheriff's uh, Deputy Mobile Outreach Team, their mental health unit, then will go out and, and pick that person up on the warrant. Uh, so that's a couple of options we have for getting people into services. This is a, a slide showing... What we've done as far as emergency detentions over, since 2013, with the exception of January and February of this year, uh, we were showing an increase every month of every year since 2013. In 2013, I think we had like 890 emergency detentions, whereas in 2017, we had 13,000. Uh, so it, it's been... a a very substantial increase. Uh, January and February of this year was the first two months of the, the, the we experienced the drop. We made up for it in, in March and April. <laughs> yeah, so we're probably online for another 14,000 ED year. Uh, now, why? 
why is it, are there more people in crisis? I don't know. Actually, uh, we're going to pat ourselves on the back here. We like to think that because of the training, we're getting more people into services as opposed to just going, here's the tinfoil hat or let's go to jail. We're actually getting in the help they need. That's the way we like to look at it. It sounds better. So hopefully that's the case. Okay. Okay. So collaboration, this is one thing that still uh, eludes me with other cities in the United States where everybody kind of wants to stay in their own bubble, the crisis center, the fire department, the police department. But one thing here in San Antonio that we've done so well, I, I believe, is the collaboration. Uh, one person picks up the ball, we pass it off to the next person, and everybody's doing their part to help someone who's in crisis. And so we have what we call roundtable meetings where our supervisors and our, and our people will sit down with community leaders, people of different organizations, and we'll actually sit down and figure out what everybody's part is in this and how we can help to achieve. Again, the goal is to uh, help provide the, the quality of life for this individual. And so uh, we've taken the pride out of this and say, hey, look, let's all work together in our respective uh, collaborative efforts to try to get this person into services. That's what it's really about. It's about that person in crisis. It's not about us. And so uh, just talk about some of the people we actually collaborate with, uh, all law enforcement agencies. Okay. Um, again, we talked about a lot of the agencies coming to our schools to, for the CIT 40-hour school. Uh, we're actually sharing the information that we, we learn with other agencies. And in return, they were able to call us. We can call them. If we have an, uh, something that needs to be addressed, we can do that with them. The fire department. This is great because a lot of things may look um, like a mental illness and could be a medical issue. Okay? And these guys can come onto the scene and they can actually uh, do um, minor assessments such as uh, the vitals of the person. Maybe take the blood sugar, make sure that um, there's nothing else going on. And if we, if we need to, we can still get them to the hospital, uh, transport by EMS. One thing I will share with the fire department that we've gotten better with over the years since we've been collaborating with them is uh, we have specific things where they would refuse to transport if we needed a, a transport to a hospital. And now we're not seeing that problem anymore because of the collaborative efforts. So if someone, again, we had one where someone tried to hang themselves. We don't know what kind of injuries uh, they may have sustained in their necks. And so rather than put them in my car, I cannot administer any type of medical intervention. Now EMS says, hey, yeah, we'll take them. We will follow them to the hospital, and then we'll do the paperwork to get them to stay at the hospital and get further treatment. Uh, in the past, it was, it, it was a lot different, so I, I'm so happy to see that that's changed. The Center for Healthcare Services, a local mental health authority, uh, we have two clinicians assigned to our unit now. So, again, now we're collaborating. This is a, a new program, like John was saying. We have two civilians now that are specifically uh, there to deal with people in, uh, in crisis. And so these folks are, are licensed clinicians. They can do follow-up assessments. They can get uh, people directed to uh, inpatient or outpatient care, get them on medications, things of that nature. So, again, um, you know, the, the police, we like to think, oh, we're the first people that people, uh, person that people call, and it's not the case. We're typically the last person that someone calls. When everything has failed, then they call the police. But now that we have this collaborative effort, um, even if I'm the la uh, last person that's called, um, I can still contact one of these agencies, and we can get together and figure out what needs to happen next. So the Center for Healthcare Services have been really huge, and um, they've been actually, uh, we're very fortunate to have them because, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a clinician, I'm trained to recognize things, but these folks can do diagnoses, they can do uh, things a little further than I can, and so with that collaborative effort, we're, we're doing a great uh, service for the community. And then our local hospitals and treatment facilities, one thing is, because of the collaborative effort we have with the local uh, hospitals and treatment facilities, our 40-hour school is basically 
free because of these folks, okay? Because of the collaborative effort, these folks um, invest t- uh, their, their, their time, their personnel. They provide meals all week for the students because of the work that we're doing. We actually have a resource fair that we have at our school uh, on Thursdays where we get all these folks together, NAMI, uh, the Methodist hospitals. Um, we have a Warrior's Heart program for uh, veterans, the first responders who are dealing with addiction uh, that they can go to. It's a beautiful facility out there. Uh, it's a 29-day program. But these folks come out to our, our roundtables, and they come out to our resource fairs, and they actually talk to the community about and the officers about the different resources available. Uh, you'll be surprised how many people don't realize what resources are available to them. Um, some people just don't know. In fact, some people still don't think we exist, okay? Uh, but we're here, and uh, we're more than happy to help anyone who's in need. Uh, again, we talked about NAMI, Haven for Hope, uh, the David, Respite, uh, David Respite House. Uh, Haven for Hope is great. Uh, if it's utilized, the folks that utilize it, they, it's a two-year program on the residential side. And what it can help these folks with is getting into housing, getting them the to and from job, help find employment, things of that nature. So get them off the streets. Uh, we started seeing a huge influx of folks coming from other states and other places to utilize Haven for Hope. And that's great because they're looking for work in other places they may not have been able to find it. Um, but they're also helping with the, the mental health side as well, getting people into services and treatment. And actually, the crisis center is right across the street from the Haven for Hope. So they, they go hand in hand. And then the Davidson House, uh, they deal with autism. Uh, so folks who have children or family members who uh, are experiencing autism, they offer services as well for that. Uh, the Bear County Mental Health Court, again, huge. So instead of just putting people in jail, uh, we're trying to circumvent that by getting people into services. Okay, Not everybody needs to go to jail, especially if they have a mental illness. And if there's something that we can do to help them get in services versus incarceration, what good does that do if somebody comes out of jail and, they, and they're not stabilized? Uh, the problem still persists. We're not doing anything. It's a revolving door. So now we're trying to figure out the best course of action to get this person maybe off the streets, off the, out of jail, because now they're stabilized. Now they're, uh, they're, they're getting their treatment that they need. One thing I like to say is um, people think that people with mental like John said, are violent or are not educated. We come across so many different people who are educated, uh, doctors, uh, uh, whatever, different professions, different races. It affects everybody, okay? Mental illness can affect everybody. And our goal as a collaborative effort is to restore the sense uh, of quality of life. And that's what we want. We want productive citizens in the city. Uh, we don't want to throw these folks off to the side or ignore the issue because um, that's not helping anybody. And so that's what's going to make us successful here. And then adult protective services, child protective services, uh, really great, especially with adult protective services. A lot of times we may be dealing with folks who are uh, older, left alone to their own devices. They have no family support. And that's another key factor. Um, a lot of people don't have that family support. Um, so it's, it's a lot harder for them to deal with it on a day-to-day basis maybe versus the people that do. But APS is a great resource because they can get these folks into, again, follow-up services uh, through their agency. And so we utilize these two agencies uh, heavily. And we sit down and we talk about uh, how we can, again, assist someone who maybe needs housing, uh, maybe needs to get on disability, things of that nature, to, again, to keep them off the streets or possibly being evicted from their home. So. One, one thing real quick about the hospitals, and we have done with our collaborative effort, is uh, now with people in crisis, they're not going to ERs, mm-hmm. uh, which used to happen. You take somebody in crisis, you put them in an ER, and ER doctor's great for, tweet, for treating broken bones, um, mental illness, not so much. Now they're all being navigated to either emergency rooms with psychiatric facilities, such as Methodist Specialty and Transplant, or Southwest General, or the inpatient facilities. And that's been, that's been a great thing for us. Um, <laughs> 
We've already talked about GL diversion. We're going to kind of jump through because we get going and we don't know when to shut up sometimes. <laughs> um, we've already said that the fact that, you know, the jail system is the largest provider of mental health services in the country. As you can see, Dallas County says 25% of the people currently incarcerated suffer from some form of mental illness. Um, cost versus prevention or treatment, $50,000 a year to house somebody in a jail system as opposed to $20,000 a year uh, for mental health services. Now, long term, I mean, that's that, that sounds like a lot of money, but stretch that out over, you know, 20% of the population, that's a lot of money. Uh, some juvenile stats, 20% of youth age 13 to 18 live with some form of mental illness. 11% uh, of mood disorders, we can look at the st stats later, but what is the impact of that? 50% of all lifetime cases of mental illness begin at 14. 75% by 24. 18 to 24 is the prime time for schizophrenia to, in, to set in. Um, and and we, we're seeing a lot more of that. And we're wondering now, with the influx of these new synthetics, we're seeing a rise in the schizophrenia. Uh, average delay from onset to intervention with juveniles is 10 years. 10 years of living with that before they get services. 50% of students age 14 or older have some form of mental illness that will drop out of high school. 70% of youth are in the state mental judicial system have some form of mental illness. More, most importantly, suicide is the second leading cause of death for juveniles from 18 to 20 or from 10 to 24. Second, accidents are number one. 90% of those juveniles that committed suicide had some underlying mental illness. Um, this just talks about money and everything. So these are our phone numbers. Uh, actually, back on our table, there's an orange form that has all of our numbers on there. On the back side of it, there's some community resources. At the very bottom, there's a resource guide that lists a multitude of, throughout Bear County of things from food bank to counseling services um, to NAMI. NAMI's website is back there. Uh, great resource back there uh, to, to look over if you know somebody that's needing some kind of resources. Again, our numbers are up there. Um, our, our hours of operation, Monday through Friday, from 7 a.m. to 3 a.m. So if you need a specific mental health problem, if the officers are coming out there and maybe not giving you the level of service you think you need, I will tell you that most of the patrol officers are really good at this. Uh, we're pretty proud of our guys in the field that actually go out and wear a uniform. They can handle the calls. But sometimes it just takes a little more. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. So um, the San Antonio Independent School District, the question was we work with SAISD for the children's school. Um, they are just the lead agency. Um, so every other school district in the city and in the state are welcome to attend this training, though. They, they are the sponsor of the program, though. Um, we have officers from Edgewood, from Southside, um, Northeast. Um, we've got, in fact, the, the, no one, or the uh, next week's class, we have officers coming in from Dallas, El Paso. Uh, so we, we open it to everyone. Any other questions? Cards, we do have questions. Cards, quick question about the care for mental health by the officers. With officers being in a high-stress career, how are officers taking care of their mental health issues? Good question. <laughs> or sleep, right? <laughs> you know what? Uh, good. That's a very good question. Yeah. Um, suicide rates 
in first responders are like 10% higher than the general public. Um, we live in a, in a world where we are desensitized to violence. Um, we see death. And I don't say, I, I want to say, you know, it's not like TV on a regular basis. My mom used to call me and she used to watch cops all the time. And she'd call me and say, did you see, mom, it takes them a month to get that 30 minutes. It's not, it's not how life is. It's like 90% boredom and 2%, then we're running code. Um, but over the years, you know, we learned to shut it off. Uh, when I was a field training officer, when we would make murder calls, I would tell the, the probationary officers, this is not a person. This is, this is a, evidence in a crime scene. Don't, don't try and figure out what they were thinking and what they had for lunch and everything because you come, become emotionally involved. Um, with post-traumatic stress, we're finding that compounding each post-traumatic stress incident will eventually turn itself into a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, people think, oh, well, it's that first time. No, not necessarily. It can be, but just the compounded stress. And then as we learn to desensitize uh, we become more prone to suicide ourselves. So how do we take care? When we teach our 40-hour class, we, we talk extensively about first, first responder suicide. We tell officers, get a hobby, get a life, get away from law enforcement, get friends outside. Are there any accountants in here? Yes. Because I don't want to offend anybody. But we tell them, get friends that are accountants. Um, so you're not talking about law enforcement. When we go hang out, what do we talk about? We talk about our job. Get friends that are going to talk about something else. Uh, are you an, you're an accountant? Uh, numbers bore me. So <laughs> I'm glad somebody does it because that takes care of my taxes. Um, but we tell them hobbies. You've, you've got, and we work the worst hours. Uh, that's why most of us marry nurses because we all work the same hours. I'm, yeah. um, but you, you've, got to, you've got to have a life away from, from work. That's, that's the most important thing that we talk about when it comes to mental health. Unfortunately, the other thing our, one of the other things our unit does is our units deal with officers and first responders in crisis. Um, if we have an officer that's in crisis, that's suicidal, uh, we make those calls. We'll go out there and we'll get that officer into service. We, we have a way of dealing with it. Um, but the reality is they're going with us one way or another. Any other questions? I'm going to cut off the questions. Okay. I've got time constraints, and I have another speaker coming up. So I want to go ahead and give us a break. Uh, we're going to do a 15-minute break, and then Tracy Green gets to stand up and, and give us a talk. So I'm looking forward to that. I do want to mention I put up the Grace Group table. On the Grace Group table, there are flyers for Pathways to Hope, which is a conference at the end of the summer, August 24th and 25th. At the Tobin Center, I really wish you would pick up one of those flyers and take it with you. It will be excellent. There's two days of speakers. Uh, you can go either day and uh, lots of stuff going on to so make sure you see the, the website. The website is also on the back side of your little card sheet. So uh, be sure to check that. You can have the flyers. You can look at the books on the Grace Group table, but you can't take the books on the Grace Group table. Go.